This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Crawford Gribben is professor of history at Queen's University in Belfast. Prior to his tenure at Queen's University, he taught at the University of Manchester and Trinity College in Dublin. His research is focused widely, including a focus on Puritanism and early modern political theology, led to the publication of nearly 20 books, dozens of academic articles throughout his career. Today, we're going to be talking about his most recent book, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, a book that chronicles the history of Christianity in Ireland. Again, is going to be a lively topic of our conversation today. Professor Crawford Gribben, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's really great to be here. I have been fascinated uh, of necessity with the pattern of secularization and, frankly, theories of secularization. And uh, I'm old enough that uh, I, I entered this conversation before there was conclusive proof of uh, radical secularization in, in many societies. Certainly, it's a process that, that we could watch. But uh, I have to say that if there is one most interesting laboratory on planet Earth right now, it appears to be the nation of Ireland, or the people of Ireland, I should say. And uh, you've written this astounding book, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. And I have to tell you, uh, I, I could not stop reading until I had finished the book. Well, that's very kind. Um, thanks. I, I wrote the book really to, to help myself understand what's happened on the island during the course of my own lifetime. I remember when I was a boy growing up in Scotland, but coming back here for holidays with my grandparents and so on. On Saturday nights, the local council would send around someone to tie up the children's swings in case any child would be presumptuous enough to go to the play park on the Sabbath day and the Lord's day. Now, I mean, that, that kind of world yeah. is only 40 years ago, but but it's completely changed now. And as you just commented, um, Ireland, both sides of the border, have now become one of the most progressive countries probably anywhere in Europe uh, and certainly leading the way in, in, in this uh, expression of secularization. Well, trying to understand this in Christian terms as well as in, say, historical and sociological terms is, uh, is necessary. I mean, we're, we're living in a time in which it's not just Ireland. Uh, that has experienced this, and, and Ireland experiencing it within a frame of time that's observable to you and to me. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an issue that is addressing uh, uh, basically all nations of the earth to one extent or another, but in particular in the West, uh, it's coming with devastating speed. So let's define some terms. When you write about the rise and fall of Christian Ireland, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, I'm trying to use that term to explain the long history of this uh, phenomenon. So I'm, I'm trying to think about how Christianity arrived in Ireland, how it developed, um, what kinds of influences it had to shape and perhaps even create a culture, how that culture became very distinct within the other Christian cultures of Europe, and then how more recently it passed through various crises, the Reformation, I suppose, being the most obvious of those, how religious tensions were overlaid with sectarian cultural, linguistic, theological tensions as well, um, how patterns of inequality emerged out of that. But how fundamentally, uh, even in the 20th century on both sides of the border, there were sustained efforts to set up distinctively Christian countries or, or Christian states to, to one degree or another, uh, and then how incredibly rapidly those cultures just seemed to disappear. 
I think in the popular imagination, and frankly, even in the sociological imagination, to say Ireland 30 years ago would be to speak of, uh, in the Republic, an intact Catholic culture, uh, and in Northern Ireland, an intact Protestant culture, which was already, by the, say, in the midpoint of the 20th century, being contrasted uh, with the rest of the UK, and in particular with England. England had experienced a secularization from the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, you know, all, all the way and, and until what's not yet an end point. But I saw a statistic the other day that about 4% of, uh, of English uh, uh, citizens were attending church more than once a month. But when you're looking at Ireland now, both in the Republic and in the North, the astounding thing is, is that both of them have largely collapsed as experiments. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think if you if you look at the the hundred years ago, yeah. uh, nineteen twenty two was the formation of the Irish Free State, which was the Southern um, government. And you know, within 10, 15 years of the beginning of that state, there were some really determined efforts by leading politicians to think very, very carefully about what a Christian country ought to look like. And of course, they were they were listening to various papal proclamations about economics or social justice, or relationships between employers and employees, and so on. They were thinking very carefully about social mores, sexual mores, um, the family, um, where a woman's place really ought to be in society, and so on and so on. And, you know, south of the border, there was a, a really ambitious attempt to take these ideals and to do something which I don't think was really ever attempted as successfully anywhere else, which was to embed these ideals in a constitution. And, you know, if you go back and look at the constitution that de Valera promulgated in 1937, it begins with an invocation of the Trinity. And it recognizes that all political power comes from God and that politicians who are, who are given that deposit of power are ultimately responsible back to him for the way in which that power is used. So, you know, fast forward and we're in a completely different um, kind of society. North of the border, Northern Ireland was never an exclusively Protestant culture in the way that the Republic was. The, the population was probably about two thirds, one third in favor of Protestants um, during, um, or certainly in the initial years of Northern Ireland. But nevertheless, Northern Ireland's first prime minister, James Craig, said that our local parliament would be a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. And even that, you know, the, the kind of self-confidence that lies behind that kind of ambition has now completely evaporated as well as um, Protestant families largely adopted the use of contraception and began to have smaller numbers of children. Catholic families tended not to do so. And, you know, we've seen population more or less become equal uh, at the present day. So it's more or less 50-50. The interesting thing about that, though, is uh, relative demographics hasn't really changed the direction of secularization, uh, you know, uh, even in terms of speed, the largely Catholic, over overwhelmingly Catholic society in the South and a much more mixed society in the North are both heading in the same direction, really within a couple of years of each other, you know, more or less tag teaming each other in terms of the pace of social change. I think the impression most people would have of Ireland is in the Republic in the South, it would be uh, such a Catholic culture that Catholicism would pervade uh, every aspect of life. Uh, Catholic festivals would be basically the national festivals, ca Catholic church going, Catholic weddings, Catholic christenings, uh, uh, baptisms. Uh, uh, it is going down the list, Catholic funerals. Uh, but by the time the reader gets to the end of your book, Catholic priests 
are so unpopular in, in the Republic that many of them dare not wear their clerical collars just because they, they don't want to confront opposition. That's, that's in a short amount of time. How, how can that happen? Well, that's, uh, that, that, that's the number one question, really, uh, that the book tries to think about. And there's a much bigger conversation about that as well. Um, it's about 30, in fact, it's exactly 30 years ago this year when the first of the great scandals within the Southern Catholic Church began to emerge. And that was the scandal of a bishop who was living secretly uh, with right. a woman, they had a child and so on. And the scandal there was really that um, church funds, church finances, um, a small a small proportion of church finances being apportioned to support this secret family. Now, 30 years on, we have lived through a sequence of official reports which have exposed that almost comic stereotype of clerical infidelity to be but the tip of an iceberg, the rest of the iceberg, including everything from institutional abuse through to the, the rape of children, through to the um, um, exploitation of, of single mothers and single right. women, all the way through to the discovery of large numbers of human remains in underground chambers that may or may not be septic tanks at the back of, of, of religious institutions. Now, while these have been overwhelmingly um, linked to the Catholic Church, it's also the case that similar patterns of abuse and behaviour have been identified in Protestant denominations too. So, you know, this is... This is Overwhelmingly, but not exclusively, a Catholic story. If if, if that makes sense, sure. And, you know, overwhelmingly, but not exclusively. Yes. Yeah, and 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 thirty years on, you know, we 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 look back at, at these um, almost innocent days of you know liaisons with housekeepers and and secret families, and it just it's just a completely different world. It, it is, and and one that I think most uh, most Christians will find shocking uh, in the documentation. But there's a pre-story to this, and I appreciate the fact that, that you take the reader through the pre-story. I mean, the big question is, first of all, the rise of uh, what you call Christian Ireland, because that was by no means inevitable, and it, it wasn't any consistent line. I mean, to be honest, Ireland's, let's just say, religious history turns out to be one of the most interesting tales uh, in, in all of this. So just kind of for a few minutes, just, just walk us through how Ireland became Christian the way you define it here. Yeah, it's a really it's a really fascinating story. In some ways, the history of Ireland is a history of Irish Christianity because the earliest date we can identify in the island's history is the year 431, which is the year when the Pope sends Palladius uh, as the first bishop of the Irish uh, of, of, of Christians in Ireland. Now, that's a really tantalizing reference because we don't know who these Christians were. Um, we know that we know that they had not been formed by any official effort of, of mission because Palladius was the first envoy from the church ever to cross beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, crumbling though it was in that period, to make it to this island to begin to minister among those believers. But there they were. Who were they? They may have been slaves. Um, Ireland was part of an international slave network at that point. Um, um, Irish pirates were, were finding slaves elsewhere, enslaving people and bringing them back. And of course, the most famous of those early slaves was Patrick. And you know, if Palladius is the beginning of that Christian tradition in Ireland, Patrick is the early name that just dominates uh, the story. And in large part, that is because he is so good at speaking about himself. Uh, he writes a number of, of things, a big confession, a, a letter to another uh, uh, slaver uh, that he tries to combat. And, you know, pa Patrick sets out this remarkable spiritual 
experience. He's the grandson of a priest. He's the son of a deacon. But by the age of 16, he's not a Christian. And he says that. He gets kidnapped at the age of 16, taken to Ireland. He's in Ireland for, what, six, seven years, something like that. And he begins to pray. And as he prays, all of the things that he has learned about Christianity begin to become real to him. And he becomes a, a believer. Eventually makes it back home, probably in his mid-20s, late-20s. Um, he's he's lost his education. He remains preoccupied for the rest of his days by how poorly educated he's been and how bad his Latin is. Uh, and yet, despite his family bribing him, encouraging him to stay with gifts and so on, he is determined to go back to the place in which he'd experienced such misery in order to bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who'd never heard it. And, you know, that that's the kind of the drama of, of the early part of the story. Right. The Irish then the Irish then go on to to convert in huge numbers. Patrick says in one of his writings that he he thinks he's baptized thousands of people on the island, and among those thousands of converts that he baptizes are a number of people who become monks. Um, the most famous, perhaps, in the early centuries is is Saint Columba, um, right. who establishes a network of monasteries up the west coast of Scotland and far beyond. Uh, St. Columba um, um, took the gospel to the Picts, that mysterious, almost unknowable culture in Scotland. We only know about them really from swirls painted on rocks. Uh, but, but we know that Columba went there, may or may not have met the Loch Ness Monster. He claims that he did. Uh, you know, I'll leave that for the experts to decide. Um, but but that, that monastic network goes on to set up bases in Shetland, in the Faroe Islands, up halfway to Iceland, and even across to Iceland itself. And we know that because when the first Vikings arrived in Iceland, they found Irish monks there ahead of them. And it's yeah. even possible that an Irish monk called Brendan would have set out in a little leather boat to cross the Atlantic uh, and perhaps be the first European to, to discover uh, North America. Um, that, that voyage was often thought to be speculative, uh, imaginative, fantastical, until 1977, when an English explorer called Tim Severin yes. set out using basically the same technology, um, albeit it took him two summers instead of one. And he sailed his little leather boat uh, from Dingle all the way across to, 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 to Canada. So, you know, it's, it's just an extraordinary story. And along the way, we, we learn about um, the, the beginning of monasticism, um, construction of hospitals, education. Uh, there's another uh, book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. If they right. didn't quite save civilization, they certainly did a huge amount to preserve the written record of learning as the Roman Empire right. on the European continent collapsed. I appreciate that uh, summary history. I, I think one of the things that a lot of Christian readers probably uh, uh, need to hear you say there is that there's really good, ample, indeed uh, overwhelming historic evidence that Patrick is not just the object of some kind of Catholic hagiography. He actually was a very real and vitally important historical human being. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, mean, I think the most remarkable thing about Patrick is how different he is from the way in which he's been remembered. So, you know, we have this, we have this privilege. We can actually read Patrick's life. If any listeners right. are interested, they can log on to a website called Confessio, confession without the end, confessio.ie, and they can read Patrick's own testimony of his own spiritual experience. And 
By and large, he reads like a modern day evangelical. His writing is suffused with scripture. He, he, he's not really paying much attention to hierarchical authority within the church. Um, he's driven by a sense of responsibility and he's driven really by uh, the conviction that as he takes the gospel to the known ends of the earth, he is fulfilling the last of the great promises, the great predictions necessary to be fulfilled before the return of Jesus Christ. And actually, if any listeners are interested in that, um, one of your colleagues at Southern, Michael Haken, has yes. written a fantastic little book on St. Patrick, which really emphasizes yes, Patrick's interest in apocalyptic and how he has this really strong sense of himself as fulfilling prophecy um, in order to see the return of Jesus Christ. As you fast forward from uh, Patrick and uh, Columba and perhaps Brendan, uh, and, and and as you look at the development of uh, of Catholic uh, Christianity institutionalized in Ireland, and, and it was heavily institutionalized, uh, it was also uh, institutionalized in a context of very low urbanization, and uh, a, 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 what was still a rather spectacularly impoverished people hanging on to a, an incredibly beautiful but still a. a largely inhospitable spot of land. And so Christianity survived along with Ireland surviving for centuries. Yeah, that, that, that's true. You know, I, I'm glad you emphasized poverty because poverty is a, a real theme in this story. Um, whether we're thinking about Ireland in the fifth century, uh, beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire and lacking all of the accoutrements of Roman civilization, or even whether we're thinking about 19th century Ireland. So if we go back, let's say, four generations or five generations in most families, we're looking at the period around the 1850s, middle of the 19th century. And the census that was taken in the middle of the 19th century established that over half of the people on this island were living in mud huts. So really, you know, from, 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 from fifth century right the way through the next 1300 years or thereabouts, the lived reality of everyday experience of most people who claimed to be Christians on this island was basically the same, which was dire poverty, but surrounded by the architectural statements of, of the church. You know, back in the 8th, 9th century, um, we see the beginning of urbanization in the formation of monasteries, and some of those monasteries are beautiful. Um, some of your listeners might have visited Glendalough in County Wicklow or Clonmacnoise, uh, and, and those are just stunning examples of, of monastic towns. Um, gradually, those monastic towns extended, um, even into Europe, uh, certainly across the North Atlantic. Uh, and gradually, we begin to see urbanization come together. But it's really the Vikings that, that kick off urbanization uh, in Ireland. And, and of course, they're attracted by the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're attracted by the church, but for all the wrong reasons. Right. Uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're here for slaves and, and, and cash, basically. And uh, along the way, they, they set up Dublin, they set up Waterford, Wexford, Limerick, a lot of other uh, coastal towns um, as, as well. Crawford, uh, if we can just speak uh, familiarly here, uh, your book is written uh, by a Christian scholar uh, about the rise and fall of Christian Ireland. Uh, you write with, I, I think, spectacularly clear prose, and, and you tell a story uh, that's massive, but you tell it pretty briskly with documentation. I really did turn every page with just tremendous interest. One of the things you 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 really help a, a, a reader to understand is that the travail, so to speak, 
of of Ireland and of uh, of Christianity in Ireland uh, has to go through the period of of uh, English domination and an attempted English reformation of Irish Catholic uh, Christianity uh, in a way that didn't go particularly well. This is an understatement, but I have to ask you just point blank. Would you, in some sense, plant the seeds of Irish secularization uh, in the experience of the 16th and 17th centuries in Ireland? It's a great question. And of course, there are historians who would make that case for Europe generally that secularization begins with the Protestant Reformation. I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I would, partly because the Protestant Reformation made such little impact on this right. island. It's almost inconsequential. So whatever may or may not be the experience elsewhere in Europe, I'm probably not equipped to say. But certainly in Ireland, there was a, a census taken at the, the end of the 16th, very early 17th century. So that was a census taken about maybe 80 years after the Protestant Reformation began. And that census reckoned there were less than, fewer than 120 Irish-born Catholics who had converted to the Reformed faith. So that's 120. So how is it possible that after the best part of three generations of effort, only 120 people had been persuaded of the Reformed faith? And I think there's some really simple answers to that. I think one is that the Irish Reformation was fundamentally legislative. So right. it, it was driven by, by changes in law. Um, it wasn't like the Scottish Reformation, there was this great kind of upsurge of popular enthusiasm for the new ideas, or indeed similar to the Reformation in, in France or England either. Um, there is no Bible translated into Irish and published for 150 years after the Reformation so-called begins. It takes the Church of Ireland, the Reformed Church of Ireland, 90 years, nine zero years, to decide what it is that it believes. So while in Scotland, the Scottish Church pushes out the Scots Confession almost instantaneously, and similar trends can be seen in other European churches, the Irish Church just sits and sits and deliberates and doesn't really do anything. Certainly does nothing to uh, win people or persuade people that what they might have to offer is more attractive than what the Catholic Church has to offer. Ironically, one of the things I tried to argue in the book is that it's only during the Protestant Reformation that the Irish people en masse become Catholic. Because up until the Protestant Reformation, Irish Catholicism had had quite a loose relationship with the Catholicism of of the European church. So up until the 16th century, the Irish church had married priests. Um, It had lots of unusual, let's say, um, clerical and liturgical practices that that were really quite far from what what would be expected in Rome. But but it's only during the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation of the 16th century that the Catholic Church really gets a grip on the collar of the Irish Church and says, look, this is what you should have been. Uh, And if you had been like this, you might not have had to worry about these terrible Protestants and their agenda for religious change. Well, just to uh, self-identify, both of us are evangelical uh, Protestants, and we're talking about the story of Ireland and the rise and fall of Christian Ireland. And uh, at least uh, as I've studied Ireland, and by the way, I've been reading over the course of years everything I could get my hands on because I'm fascinated with this very story in Ireland. Uh, You know, Seamus Haney and the the fall of Christian Ireland again, very or or the death of Christian Ireland, I think is the title of a recent book. Uh, other books written more journalistically uh, uh, about the the, the rather uh, 
catastrophic uh, secularization that has reshaped uh, Ireland. But but just looking at this, um, taking the issue we just discussed, the, the Protestant Catholic understanding, what, what difference does the Reformation make? It, it seems to me as an historical theologian that if you, if you look at the Reformation in, say, Northern Europe, and in particular the German-speaking Reformation, you know, the principle that the, the religion of the prince was the religion of the people, uh, and the breakup of the Holy Roman Empire, and the, you know, you, you had the elector of Saxony and others who were, who were just clearly breaking with the church. And, and, and so it was at least partly political, let's just say that. Um, uh, the, nothing like that happened in Ireland. And I have to wonder if it's because the political system there uh, didn't allow for the distribution of, uh, say, principalities he had in Europe where you could have some that would say we're no longer under the, the reign. And then, and then I just have to ask you, uh, because English domination over Ireland is so much a part of the story here, and then with the English Reformation, uh, Catholicism became a resistance movement over against the, the, the English Reformation, right? Exactly, yeah. And I think, I think that's one of the great achievements of the Catholic hierarchy during the Reformation period, is that they identify very successfully the suffering of the people with the suffering of the church. And so um, there's, there's lots of debates, obviously, isn't there, about or aren't there about the origins of nationalism and the origins of religious nationalism. Right. And maybe maybe it's too early a period to describe that phenomenon as a, as a nationalism. But if it's not a nationalism, it's something very close to a nationalism. It's a social, where, it's a social uh, consolidation for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's given a, a religious veneer and that religious veneer does make sense. It makes sense. It made sense then. It makes sense now. And, you know, right. the, the Catholic Church then becomes the vehicle of preserving a culture, becomes the vehicle of, of giving a people an identity um, that, that they have a religious identity rather than right. a, a national identity imposed upon them by their by, by, by their overlords. So th that connection between the people and the Catholic Church becomes a very important connection all the way through the 17th century. Obviously, the Cromwellian invasion really consolidates that link all the way into the 18th century, where the, the British government eventually begins to recognize the strength of that association and to try to, to try to bring Catholics in from the cold or certain Catholics in from the cold. And it stretches through into the 19th century as well, because just as um, many Protestants are beginning to identify with the state, the, the, the Union, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, uh, at the same time, Catholics are still identifying as the people. And, and it becomes, you know, it provides, even in the early 20th century, it provides the nationalist movement with key themes, key images. If you look at some of the writings of the 1916 rebels, uh, martyrs, depending on your perspective, they are, they are deeply, deeply pious men and women. And uh, some of the poetry they write is just suffused with uh, language and images drawn from the passion of, of the Lord Jesus. As uh, the, the story is, is tracked uh, and you tell it so well, uh, I have to wonder if something like, you know, the Brad Gregory thesis, uh, you know, plays something here with the modernity basically bringing secularization simply because it brings options. It, you know, there, there's the cleavage between crown and altar. Uh, or uh, sometimes referred to as throne and altar. Uh, and so all of a sudden, in one sense or another, the state becomes secularized in most places, at least in, in Europe. And by the time you get to the American Revolution and uh, uh, American constitutionalism, 
is just assumed. And, and you also have the rise in Protestant-dominated lands of an economic empire that I- emerges, has a dynamic all its own. And uh, so I have to wonder, at least in part, did, did Ireland remain as Ireland was largely because it escaped both of those massive historical movements. I mean, you basically had no separation of throne and altar uh, throughout most of that time. And you also had, uh, you know, the nation was largely immune from what we might call capitalism. Yes, I, I think that's a, I think that's a very fair observation. If, if you were to look at someone like De Valera, Eamon De Valera, who is president of the Republic of Ireland for, right. you know, for a very, very long time and shapes Two it. Two different least, terms. Yeah, and and, yeah. And, and not least through shaping that constitution, but also in imagining what, what Churchill does for Britain during the war. Right. De Valera does the same for Ireland. He 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 weaponizes language. He he he's this tremendously forceful imagination of what Ireland ought to look like. And in some of his, his wartime broadcasts, he is, I suppose, making a virtue of necessity, but he is imagining in the most glorious terms the benefits of a rural pastoral society where older people are respected, where the young can play innocently and all are held together by this common Catholic faith. Now, I mean, I suppose the great irony of some of those speeches is that the little children he imagines playing happily, uh, you know, on a mud floor by the fire where the broth is cooking slowly and the bread is slowly rising. You know, those are the children who grew up to be the CEOs of the Celtic tiger economy that just takes off in the 1990s. And in some ways, in the book, I argue the 1990s are the tipping point. That's the moment really when traditional patterns of faith or social order, Protestant and Catholic, really begin to collapse, sometimes quite dramatically. And of course, there's a correlation with a a, a booming economy. Um, There's also a correlation, I think, with increasingly transatlantic personal connections so that people are traveling more. They're seeing how people live elsewhere, even within the English-speaking world. And they're, they're perhaps coming back and saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really happy with the options that are presented to me here and begin to vote in response yeah. to that. So I think the 1990s really are the moment when everything very quickly begins to change. Let's look at a couple of moments before that. I, I, I want to uh, hasten to the 90s uh, pretty quickly, but just, just a couple of, of uh, issues. First of all, the formation of the Republic. Uh, I think most Americans just assume Ireland's always been Ireland. You know, I, I think it's important to recognize that the nation state uh, we, we know as Ireland is a 20th century invention and, uh, frankly, a fairly awkward one. Yes, uh, the, the, there obviously there's historical claims to nationhood that, that go back to antiquity. Right, right. Uh, but we'll, we'll, right. we'll sidestep those and we'll just focus on, on the state, as you suggested. Yeah, absolutely. The state is formed in 1922, it evolves, it eventually becomes a republic in the late 1940s. Um, correspondingly, Northern Ireland. Um, in, in some ways, the, the six counties of Northern Ireland are a continuation of British rule in Ireland, which right. don't have, which doesn't have the freedom to invent itself anew. So it, its whole rationale is continuity. So it has inherited this body of laws. Those are the body of laws that control that society. Those in the 26 counties that make up the free state, which becomes the Republic of Ireland, are given a completely different opportunity, which is to think from the from ground zero really what should a country be so they have a complete opportunity to create a christian country from nothing and they're drawing down as i mentioned before a lot of recent catholic teaching in order to do so so i, I mean i think that 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 speaks to this bigger narrative of secularization the brad gregory thesis and so on as well because in some ways 
there's a there's a social continuity that exists in Northern Ireland that does not exist in the Republic because 1922 well, 1937 the new constitution is a real interruption in the course of European secularization because it's resisting it with all the apparatus of the state and and in order to resist it successfully it has to draw down the social capital of the Catholic Church so the Catholic Church has to provide education. The Catholic Church has to provide healthcare. The Catholic Church has to provide essential social services. And in some ways, they are, what, what's that expression? Um, standing athwart history, shouting stop. You, right. you remember it. Um, that, yeah. That's not exactly how it's meant to be. But um, but in some ways, that's William exactly, F. Buckley Jr., by the way. Exactly. There. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's my nod towards the American conservatives out there. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but that's that's exactly what they're doing in the yes. 1920s and 1930s. As Europe drifts towards war, they're valorizing what, what should a Catholic state look like? And let's be right. it. Let's be that state. Yes. And then you fast forward and everything's different uh, in, in lived lifetimes. And so I, I was reading, uh, actually, uh, this uh, particular book. It's, it's, it's by Fenton O'Toole. Uh, and uh, so we don't know ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. And, and I got to that after I read your book. And uh, so, but, but there you're talking about a young man who was once an altar boy and, and for whom the... the uh, the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church and the pattern of Catholic education and growing up in a Catholic family in a Catholic neighborhood, that was everything until by the end of the book, it's absolutely nothing. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, all, all the way back to the 19th century, you have English literature in which that's true for individuals, but he's not writing about himself as an individual. He's writing about Ireland as a project. Uh, I, I think it's difficult actually to, uh, to exaggerate the, the process of change we're looking at here. You've gone from priests being the most respected people in the community to being basically uh, required to walk around in camouflage. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. So you, you take the Victorian crisis of faith, so-called, right. and we're thinking about George Eliot or sure. you know, a, a handful of other key intellectuals who are experiencing in a very individualistic way what it feels like to lose your religious sense of things, which in their case is how you organize your world. Fast forward to 20th century Ireland, late 20th, early 21st century Ireland, that experience is happening to 6 million people simultaneously. And it's compressed chronologically. So it's happening in just a couple of decades. And of course, that, you know, that leaves massive questions about what kinds of narratives will come into that ideological vacuum, intellectual vacuum, social vacuum, to help people begin to reassemble the different parts of their world. But, you know, where's that going to go? Who knows? In my adult lifetime, by the way, just to uh, to fast forward even beyond your book, uh, and and the, just because every book has to have a publication date, and things keep happening, and uh, Sinn Fein winning the elections uh, uh, th there in in Northern Ireland, you know, to, to to an American evangelical Christian who grew up in in my lifetime, that appears to be absolutely impossible, but but it actually happened, and so you know, it, it turns out that it happened. Because Sinn Féin, that had been identified with the IRA and, 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 and as a driving force for Catholicism, if not a Catholic party, uh, the, the, at least part of the reason why it won is because it represents now a secular moral liberalism. Uh, yeah, yeah. As if to say the Protestant-Catholic divide is no longer the main divide. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. A lot has been written about that election result last week um, here, which has given us this historic result. 
yes. um, a century after the formation of the Northern Ireland state, where the first right. minister should be appointed by Sinn Féin, although the unionist politicians are conspiring to stop that happening. Nevertheless, um, what I think what's really interesting about this election is what it demonstrates about the weakness of the appeal of the Catholic hierarchy. In every election in Northern Ireland that I can remember over the last 15, 20 years, the Catholic bishops locally have issued a proclamation to the faithful before the election saying, do not vote for a party or for candidates that do not support the pro-life position, or more recently, that do not support the normal tenets of Christian marriage. And I think what's so staggering is that in this election, for the first time, really, we have had uh, a Republican Party into, led by Padre Tabin, who's formerly of Sinn Féin, but left Sinn Féin um, about five years ago, I think, whenever it changed its position on abortion. And, and that was a party that was really set up as a vehicle for conservative, socially conservative, not, not politically conservative, but socially conservative Catholics to vote for in good conscience. And hardly any of them did. You know, it was six, seven thousand, I think, offhand, I can't quite remember. Contrast that with the 250,000 people uh, who voted for Sinn Féin. So, yeah, so, so in some ways, the election result is 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 result that tells us what the social capital or the credibility of Catholic political appeals now is, and it doesn't amount to very much. As you're thinking about this process we call secularization, which uh, just to define it means the receding influence of theism uh, in a society. The society is reshaped by uh, non-religious uh, tenets, currents, patterns of thought gaining dominance. But there's always a memory there, or at least at least in the Western secularizing experience, there's always a memory. Uh, the memory seems to be coming back. So in the United States, the debate over abortion, you know, you, the, the secular left just responds with, this is nothing more than Christian nationalism, as if it hadn't shaped the entire society for uh, for centuries. And, and, and in Ireland, I, I, I watched the situation there very closely. Uh, let me just test a thesis. It, it's almost as if, yes, there's a Christian memory, but that memory is now poisonous in, in the views of many people who, uh, who who live both in the North and the South. I'm thinking particularly uh, in the Republic of Ireland. It, it's as if, yes, there's a memory, but we're trying our best to run from it. I think that's exactly right. Um, you, you mentioned um, uh, Colm Tobin's book, and there's other, or Vincent O'Toole's yeah. book, I should say, and there's been a, a slew of other books that have come out recently right. as well. Um, memoirs often, um, or re reportage often, um, working with people who, who are trying to process what's happened, which, you know, to, to, you know to, let, let's remember for many of them, it has been an extremely painful experience. Uh, the, the levels of abuse, um, especially right. in Republic, have been very, very high. There's a lot of traumatized people who need space, time, et cetera, to work through sometimes terrible things that they've experienced. Yes. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't underestimate the difficulty of that. Um, it, it just, it just seems to me that there's this huge question mark now as to what happens next. So if, if a country is rejecting its past, which countries are entitled to do, but if, if a nation is, or if, if a community, a national community is rejecting its past, it's got to have some different plan for the future. And, uh, you know, just, doesn't really seem to me that that kind of conversation has started yet. 
um, there, there is simply aspirations to, you know, let's be like all the other nations uh, and, um, you know, try, try, try to develop this policy, that policy or the next. Um, but but there's no kind of controlling narrative. There's no, I, I, can't, I, I can't see what's going to hold these people together. And, and, and actually the holding of people together is going to become an increasingly important thing to think about if the election success of Sinn Féin in the North last week or the week before is matched by the election success of Sinn Féin in the South and the next election down there, they're currently cruising about 10 to 12 points ahead of the opposition. Um, so, you know, if, if we're heading towards that moment of reunification, we've got to think about what that is going to be based on socially. What, 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 what are the markers that are going to make sense of that imaginatively? Right. You know, when I think of Ireland and I think of Ireland's history, uh, there, there's a part which is kind of the, uh, you know, how the Irish saved civilization. I mean, the, the, the book's overwritten and not, not particularly good history, but there's some good arguments it's, it's to be a, made it's there. It's a lot of fun. It's yeah, a it is. book to read. It's a lot some of fun. Yeah. Great arguments to be made there. And, uh, and one of the arguments is the survival of civilization with monks who kept copying texts, you know, when the rest of the world was, the vandals were burning them. And and so I, I concede that. I, I actually celebrate that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you, you go to see Irish monasteries. You, you don't, yeah. Thanks to Henry VIII, you don't get to see British or English <laughs> monasteries. But, um, but at the same time, the evangelical in me just has to say, the Reformation uh, committed theologian in me has to say, uh, in one way, Ireland is predictable by Luther, uh, which is a is something I'm actually thinking of writing up, and it, it may offend you as an historian there, but, uh, you know, l l at least in the Reformation, Luther said, you know, confronting the institutional Catholic Church simply said, look, these things aren't going to work. Uh, it, it's not natural to put all these women together in a nunnery. <laughs> and having been a friar, it's, it's not natural to put all these men together. And it's not natural to sequester away the education of children, you know, which is why, one of the reasons why Luther, you know, uh, celebrated the 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 seer of the domestic and his own family with Katie and his children in such a way as to say this is public. This is not something we're not, we're not putting these children away. Um, am I exaggerating that, or or, or are we onto something? <laughs> well, I'm putting you on the spot. You are. You really are. Um, yeah. let, let, let me see. Well, I think I think that the New Testament epistles have their own warnings about. Um, the dangers of trying to impose restrictions on the flesh, as Paul puts it, which actually right. don't help you. Unbiblical restrictions. What you set out to do. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, forbidding to marry, First Timothy, and so on. You know, so so the, the warnings, we can trace the warnings back further beyond Luther, right the way back to the New Testament itself. Right. Uh, and, you know, if, if we pay attention to that, I, you know, I think it does explain something uh, it never takes away responsibility you know it never takes away the responsibility right. of, of those who have committed sometimes terrible sins and iniquities upon innocent people and um, oh absolutely you know we, we yeah. always have to be very mindful of of, of the pain that and, and misery that that a society has endured that has really led it to right. act in the way that it has but we also have to learn from history some of what facilitated it made it possible uh and um uh, you know, looking at this, and of course, I'd, I'd have to add to that theologically, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church's sacramental understanding, uh, which made it possible to have a class of people who were who basically independent of having to live faithfully uh, uh, because of their, uh, of, of their status. And uh, you, put, you put all that together, and I guess 
sociologically, it becomes easier to understand how it could fall so quickly in the light of evidence of massive abuse. And I mean, I, I think, again, the scale that, uh, that you document in your book and are so documented in the commission reports that have come out, the scale. I mean, frankly, in, in America, we've had our own horrifying sex abuse crises, but nothing on the scale uh, and nothing institutionalized to the extent uh, that we see in Ireland. It's just heartbreaking. It's just, it's just staggering in, in its heartbreaking magnitude. It is, but, but I think it's also important for us to remember that what leads to these kinds of activities in Ireland or anywhere else is something that's common to all people, no matter right. what the religious identity is. And of course, the Bible explains that as sin. And, and you know, the reason, right. the reason why, you know, well, we, you know, we've, we, we talk more about the scale of abuse in the Catholic Church, and, and that's because it's bigger. But it's bigger than what? Well, it's bigger than the abuse that also took place in Protestant denominations. So the Protestant denominations, especially in the South, didn't have the cultural power to do what the Catholic Church was doing and therefore perhaps didn't fall into the same problems in this to the same extent. But they, they did often fall into the same problems. And some of the more recent reports that the government has produced down there um, have paid attention to that. And in fact, just about six, eight weeks ago, there was a formal apology issued by a number, by, by a number of governments, by a number of government agencies, I should say, religious denominations, Catholic and Protestant, collectively apologized to victims of abuse. I think that was appropriate because sometimes the, the media presents this and the memoirs that uh, we've been chatting about often present this as a kind of exclusively Catholic problem, but of course it isn't. It, right. it, it's everywhere, it's in every place actually. Um, we've just had it worse than most. Well, and it it, uh, it also is by opportunity. So, I mean, eventually, uh, just in a fallen, sinful world, the headlines are going to be in a secular age of secular institutions. Yeah. Uh, and, and we need to pray it will not happen. But uh, in a fallen world, uh, opportunity and sin collide in a way that the Bible yeah. uh, demonstrates uh, very, very clearly. Yeah. I, I, I want to take, uh, take us to the, the end of your book, which is Bracing. And, uh, and by the way, so many Christian scholars pull back, uh, frankly, so many academics, <laughs> Christian and otherwise, just pull back from their own data, from their own analysis when they come to the end. Uh, one of the most important sections of your book is, is, is where you write about the consequences of the secularization. And, and on page 214, uh, you wrote something that I've cited, actually, in lectures I've given in academic settings. Uh, your book came out just as I was finishing. Uh, a series of lectures on uh, uh, on the secular moment, which is the title of the lectures. And, uh, and here on page 214 in your book, uh, you write about the, the secularization of, of the society there. And you went on to say, if current trends in public opinion continue, some of the traditional moral claims of Christianity will cease to be socially acceptable. And in the absence of robust free speech legislation, the public statement of these claims may no longer be Permitted. Yes, and when I wrote that approximately two years ago now, yes, uh, I think that things have changed a bit since then again, uh, and right. um, I, I think it's it's now I think obvious that a forthright articulation of views on some moral issues that are once common to all Christians, right, um, would be would be met with some quite difficult consequences. Well, we certainly see that, by the way, on both sides of the Atlantic, and yeah. uh, and here the commanding heights of higher education, uh, uh, the cultural creatives, as they're known, and and what we see increasingly 
even with announcements made the, the, the morning you and I are having this conversation here in the United States of corporations who are simply saying this is not acceptable. We are, are no longer a, a major American corporation had had put out a statement saying that uh, it was calling on employees to respect one another. if They had differences on the question of abortion. And uh, employees, uh, activists for the pro-abortion side came back and said, that's unacceptable. And the company just caved and said, no, you're right. There, there's, there aren't two, two acceptable positions on abortion. And it's the Christian pro-life position that's now, it's just, now just out. It, it, it was in 24 hours, just out. Um, and, and so I don't think you were a prophet, uh, Professor. Uh, I, I, I think it was happening as you wrote, but your, your, your prophetic voice is just incredibly clear here. So let me ask you, what, 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 is the, what is the future? You're a Christian in Ireland. Uh, what's the future of Christianity in Ireland? Well, not being a prophet, it's impossible to be exact, but I think you can see some of the trends and project those trends into the future. And um, I, th- I think that the, the numbers of the faithful, let's say, yeah. in, in the Protestant denominations are probably going to continue to decrease. Um, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing if it means that you're decreasing to a hardcore of people who genuinely believe regenerate believers. What, 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 yeah. what they confess. Um, um, the um, social opprobrium that will follow the articulation of Christian convictions in the public sphere um, will sort things out a lot, but I think it'll be really difficult. And I think that um, here in the North where I'm based, um, a, a lot of evangelicals, as we're talking about evangelicals, a lot of evangelicals have become so accustomed to a fairly cozy situation vis-a-vis the state are probably going to be quite shocked when the extent of withdrawal from those convictions on the part of the state or major corporations becomes clear. So, I mean, it's, it's very obvious at the moment, if you look at the last election campaign here over the last six weeks or so, that some of the sort of bastions of conservatism are no longer articulating any kind of positivity about core Christian convictions, for example, about the sanctity of life. But but a lot of the electorate simply hasn't noticed that yet. Um, When they do, the question is when they do, will it make a difference? And I suspect that one of the tragedies of Northern Ireland, if I can speak as someone who lives here, is that constitutional issues will always trump moral issues. And so actually it's not going to matter that the major, let's say, unionist party or, or traditionally the major unionist party moves away from any kind of articulation or defense of these ideas. It's not going to matter to most voters because what they actually care about is not a defense of Christian values in the public square, but it's a, a constitutional connection to the United Kingdom. There's also something else uh, perhaps more fundamental going on here. And, and I, when I, and I've been working on these questions now for 30 plus years. Uh, when I try to describe it, you know, just to make it as simple as possible to, to, to people, you know, the secularization was at one point a process going up a mountain, now it's coming down a mountain. And, uh, and once a secular process and a, a secular view of life is, is understood in society as the means of personal liberation, it's very, very hard to slow it down. I mean, we see this with, you know, LGBTQ plus, you know, at, at, the, at, at the end of that. And uh, I, I think Christians are thinking in fundamentally different terms because we are Christians, find it difficult to believe that secular people actually become increasingly more secular. Now, I, I realize they're still made in God's image. They still have a religious impulse. And we could talk about how that comes out in various ways. 
But what, what they are unwilling to do is to tie themselves to any revealed morality or, 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 or any, uh, any morality that would put limits upon individual self-expression. Yeah, that's an interesting comment. I mean, I suppose the, um, uh, uh, there's a discussion to be had about what freedom means, isn't there? Sure. And, and, and from a Christian perspective, we look at Galatians, for example, stand fast in the right. freedom in which Christ has set you free. So the language of freedom, the language of liberation, the language of escape and of self-fulfillment, right. that's Christian language. Now, other people might be co-opting it. I call that cultural appropriation. Sure. But, you know, we, you know it's our language. And I think we need, to, we need to own that language. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. Those are wonderful right. promises that so many people just need to hear and want to hear. But true freedom, you know, as Christians, we know is only found in Jesus Christ. Uh, Pitarim Sorokin, I don't know if you know that name, he's a, a Russian immigrant, the founder of sociology actually at Harvard University, but very much a traditionalist in understanding how, how societies work. Uh, Pitarim Sorokin just, just points out, he said, look, harnessing the human sexual uh, drive is the first achievement of civilization. And most people living in the 20th century, when he wrote, said, have no idea how long it took civilization uh, to, uh, to restrain what he called the fires of, uh, of unbridled sexuality. And uh, I, I, I think of that very often, uh, uh, Crawford, because I, I think w w once those fires are set loose, and, uh, and so I, I look at the Irish newspapers uh, digitally, I, 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 I listen to the Irish conversation, and uh, it, it is so driven by this liberationist theme. I feel like I'm kind of like in Berkeley, California. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe that historical trends are inevitable. As a Christian, I don't believe that. Uh, but uh, it, does, it does seem to me that Christianity, authentic Christianity in Ireland, and by the way, in the United States, but in a different way, is going to have to become, oddly enough, more like Patrick. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the, the missionary the theology, work. yeah, the, the, there's a teleology built into the title of the book, The Rise and Fall. Yes. And I think that that teleology is something that resonates with us because we think we're at the end of something. But what if we aren't? What if we aren't? So, you know, we can read Psalm 2, for example, and we read in Psalm 2 that there has been a conspiracy of governments and societies and nations and cultures, a conspiracy of rebellion of, of Gentile nations. And, and that's perennial. It's perennial. So we think of ourselves as being at the end of something, but we're just in the perennial moment. Our struggle is still the same struggle of Ephesians 6, not against flesh and blood, uh, but against other kinds of, of powers. Um, and of course, we have the weapons to deal with them. Patrick knew that. And I think... The faith that he brought to Ireland was quite a simple faith, very straightforward faith. It was it was robustly biblical. You know, scripture just oozes out of his writing. That was the world that he lived in. And I think Patrick, you know, Patrick could have looked at his circumstances, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire in the fifth century, the withdrawal of Christian political power across large parts of Europe. And I think he could easily have given way to despair if he thought that political institutions were vehicles of the kingdom of God. But what if they're not? What if the great vehicle of the kingdom of God is a guy in a robe and a staff shouting at people about good news about Jesus Christ, telling them to get baptized, to form themselves into churches, and to live as Christians in the most unappealing circumstances? Maybe that's what it's all about. Well, and we're also able to speak as evangelical Christians to say that uh, 
who were absolutely convinced that upon this rock, Christ built his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the Christian influence uh, or, or Christian good fortune or Christian liberties uh, or you, what to use the language of the left in the United States now, Christian privilege um, is respected by society. Professor Griffin, your book is just outstanding. It, it made me think in a way that, uh, that has, has, uh, has genuinely given me ammunition, fodder for thought, a, a book that reached my heart as well as my head. And I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to read it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it too. I, I have to ask you one other question because you as a Christian scholar and author range across some of the most remarkable territory. So I, I just want to ask before letting you go today, what are you working on now? <laughs> uh, I'm writing a book about John Nelson Darby, who's often thought to be the founder of dispensationalism. Um, and I'm going to be hopefully trying to show his deep commitment to Augustinianism, Calvinism, uh, and um, other such delights. So that's, that, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Well, be sure to send uh, copies of that manuscript to my uh, friends at a school in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> I say that in a friendly way. Now, I'll very much look forward to uh, look, look, look forward to seeing that. And uh, until then, uh, just uh, know my appreciation. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you for your time. Many thanks to my guest, Crawford Gribben, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find well more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.